Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of the Pro Basketball Talk podcast here at NBC Sports. We are, well, less than a week into the playoffs completely, but we're two games in for every series. Time to break down the entire playoffs, all eight series, with Dan Feldman from NBC Sports. He's here to join us, but first, just a reminder to go to applepodcast.com slash PBT on NBC. That's PBT is in Pro Basketball Talk at NBC. Subscribe to this podcast, comment, Leave us a message. Let us know what you want to see and what you think. You can also subscribe at Stitcher, at Google Play. Basically, anywhere you get your podcast, you can find our podcast. So please subscribe, comment, and uh, well, it's time to start breaking this down. And as promised to break it all down, our man Dan Feldman from here at NBC Sports. How's it going today, Dan? Good. How are you? Good. Good. Let's, let's get into this right away. We're going to start with, well, let's start in the East because I think there's some interesting stuff going over there, particularly tonight. Thursday night, game three between the Sixers and Heat, I think is fascinating. I think that series has been interesting in that, like, in game one, the Sixers were phenomenal. Ben Simmons was phenomenal in the second half. They were hitting their threes. They were making plays. But in game two, they paid a price for that. When they were, look, Miami is a disciplined team. They made them pay a price for the turnovers. They made them pay a price when those threes didn't fall and they became long rebounds and became breakaways and not breakaways, but breakouts and chances for early offense for Miami. Uh, if you're Philadelphia and you don't have most likely uh, Joel Embiid for this game three, uh, what are you, what are you adjusting? What are you thinking about trying to get to? Honestly, I don't think I'm adjusting much. And there are, there are little things here and there that we can talk about that they could do a little differently. But to me, the biggest difference between game one and two and game one the 76ers made an absurd number of three-pointers, and in Game 2, they missed an absurd number of three-pointers. The equilibrium is somewhere in between there, and I still think that favors the 76ers. I do, too, but I think that they, they, they're they learning how to defend in the playoffs. And Miami's a tough team to defend, right? I mean, because all five of their guys are kind of versatile and active, they don't play—they've got roles, but they, they're all their guys can do a little bit of everything. They all move the ball— and they make you work off multiple, whether it's a dribble handoff or a pick. I mean, they make you work off of multiple actions every set and make you make a lot of decisions. And then you have to adjust on the fly. Philly has the length for that. They have the length to make, you know, to create some turnovers and get some chances going the other direction. I think they need to be a little more consistent with that. I'm curious how they'll do in game three. Yeah, I mean, some of this is just gaining experience. They already give a lot of minutes to Robert Covington, who's an excellent defender, to J.J. Redick, who 
is not a good defender, but is a smart defender and understands going through a lot of these different sets and all the things that the Heat will throw at them. Like, I'm not sure how much they can do. Ursan Ilyasova, he defends hard. He's an underrated defender. Like, they're putting the right guys out there. And some of them, you know, Ben Simmons, a good defender, but also needs the experience of dealing with all this. And I'm, you know, not sure how much you can accelerate that process other than, you know, watching film, seeing all the different things the Heat are doing. Uh, but that only goes so far because the Heat will keep bringing out new things. Exactly. I, Miami goes home, I, I, but I don't know that they change a whole lot either from what we saw in Game 2. I mean, they were obviously they were successful in Game 2 and got the win. I don't know that this is... Sometimes we talk about series and adjustments and massive things are going to do. I don't know that we're going to see a lot here until Joel Embiid returns. And then I feel like everything we've learned in this series up to this point, we can just throw in a trash can because suddenly Joel Embiid is on the floor. The Sixers play their defense differently, but their offense is different, flows through him. It doesn't move as much. And Miami like brings out Hassan Whiteside to counter as he's almost been played off the floor in this series so far. And like just everything changes. Yeah, I definitely agree everything changes when Embiid comes back, but I'm not quite as sure that the Heat should stick with their same game plan. I mean, the biggest thing they had working for them in the last game, other than the 76ers missing some solid looks at three-pointers, was Dwayne Wade had a great game. He made a ton of mid-range shots. I'm not sure you can count on that. Uh, I think the Heat need to be a little more proactive with keep trying to figure out different things that work uh, and some of that is going to be finding a balance between Wade and Dragic. Uh, you know, can they both play together? And I think that's something Miami have to figure out a little bit. Now, Miami, yeah, they did rely on Wade. I mean, Wade had one of those throwback games, and when he's in that zone where he's hitting those mid-range shots, you just kind of get in the ball and get out of the way. But I think they do need more out of Dragic. And then out of James Johnson, out of some other guys who I think are capable of stepping up and having strong games for them, but they, they, the offense has to come from somewhere else. I don't, I, I think what you think Wade's got another one of these games in the, in him for this series, but that might be it. Maybe two of them somewhere. I don't think he has any more. I mean, I, I think you, you should be happy to get the one. I wouldn't be surprised if he has another, but I, I think the over under was <laughs> a, at about somewhere between half and one. So you feel good <laughs> about this. I'm not banking on any more. They certainly can't bank on it, but they do go home where their role players should be more comfortable. And, Look, I think this is a pretty even series leaning Sixers until Embiid comes back. And, a, you know, from the outside out here, it's almost impossible to predict when he'll come back. Although I will say Sixers have a, a little bit of a history of uh, resting their guys and being a little cautious with injuries. I don't know if you've known about that, Dan. So <laughs> I, I, w- I will say that I, I, am, I might be the only one in this boat, but I'm not sure Joel Embiid coming back is on balance a good thing for the 76ers within this series. And and of course, the 76ers are better with Embiid. There's no question about that. He's their best player. Teams are almost always better with their best player, and the 76ers definitely are. But they've learned to play this different style without him. They yeah. play more up-tempo, led by Ben Simmons. They pass more. They move more. Everything is flowing quicker on offense. And it's going to be an adjustment to integrate Embiid back into it. Now, I'm confident they can make that adjustment over time, if this were the regular season, it'd be no big deal if it takes a couple games to make that adjustment. Uh, and obviously, he'll be a big defensive upgrade. And like you said, though, for the Heat, it allows them to use this on white side a little easier. Uh, but I also think this offensive adjustment, if it takes a couple games during a playoff series, that could be catastrophic. Yeah, that's actually really true. They, they, 
there is that hole. They've got to fit him back in because remember, he didn't just miss the playoffs here. He missed the end of the regular season as well with this injury. And uh, it would it things do flow differently, and it's going to be different for both Ben Simmons and Fultz, who's who's played pretty well uh, off the bench, and but now have to adjust to. Uh, both playing with Embiid and then, you know, not running into him and breaking his face, ideally. <laughs> so, it's, we'll see what happens the rest of that series. I, again, I think that series is interesting just because it's going to take this radical left turn halfway through it. And whenever that comes, game four, game five, if at all, it changes everything about the series. So they go into an interesting game three. An interesting game two last night, but in the Pacers-Cavaliers series, where, look, LeBron James absolutely flat out just goes off in the LeBron James, I'm the best player in the planet kind of way. But beyond that, they've got better play out of J.R. Smith and just the starting rotations that Ty Lue switched to. And Victor Oladipo is in foul trouble, and we can discuss this. He should have played more minutes. I hate that they pulled him. Their, their offense absolutely full, falls apart. This isn't a guy who racks up fouls. He's fouled out like once in his entire career or something. He doesn't foul out, yet they pull him. They sit him for long stretches. They get behind in the first. And Indiana still almost wins that game, or at least could have tied it with, with 30 seconds to go. If I'm the Pacers, I'm feeling pretty good right now. Oh, they should. I mean, you know... I don't trust Nate McMillan to get that coaching decision right next time. This is just something that coaches do too often is bench players, and there doesn't seem to be lessons learned ever about this or remorse about it ever. Uh, but the odds of Oladipo getting into early foul trouble are low. Yes. That probably won't happen again, and you know the Pacers were right there with them. You know, look at LeBron. The, play, the, the Cavs' playoff run is going to be dictated in large part by LeBron's effort level. How much is he willing to accept the mental and physical challenge of completely carrying this team as far as it can go? And I, I think that could be through the East if he is totally up for it. Even then, it's not a guarantee. His supporting cast is, is lacking in a way that, that even that might not be enough, but it probably would be. And so, potentially, if Oladipo was on the court more and the Pacers are playing better, LeBron would keep his foot on the gas. He scored, I think it was, what, the first 16 points for Cleveland – and, you know, it was still very good from there on, but was not quite as aggressive. Maybe if he had to be more aggressive, he would have been. Yeah, he did. I think he could dial back a little bit. I still think he realizes, too, that if he's not going to get more out of... He needs to get more. Kevin Love was, again, I think, what, 15 points on 16 shots, and now he's got the uh, the injured thumb that he's going to play through, but that's not going to help him. Um, other guys have just seen, you know... J.R. Smith had a good first game, but he's streaky. Clarkson, Nance, all these guys just seem new to this, and they're and they're not they're a little overwhelmed by the moment. They have been great in the playoffs, and maybe they get some moments out of them. But it really is just LeBron against the world. And how long can he carry them? I think he's still trying to lift the other guys up. But at some point, he may just have no choice but to put this on his back. And I think that's enough against Indiana. I don't know if that's enough against Toronto. The way the Raptors are playing right now, I don't know if I don't know that that's enough to get them out of the East. I agree, and we talk about these other players. They're not creating anything for themselves, at least not no. well. These are all guys who need LeBron to set them up, so the burden is still on him. And in hindsight, we always we always kind of criticize the your turn, my turn nature of how he played with Dwayne Wade, how he played with Kyrie Irving. Like We always thought there was a higher potential that if they worked better in tandem and off each other, that, that the ceiling could be so much higher. But I think looking back at it, we probably underrated 
the effect of just it being a mental and physical break for LeBron to say, okay, Dwayne Wade when he was with the Heat or Kyrie Irving uh, these last few years in Cleveland, like, you take this possession. Yeah. And let me just camp out. And if you need me, I'll be here. Like, I'm still in the game. I'm not disengaged. But I don't need to be doing everything. And every single possession offensively for the Cavs, they are in trouble if LeBron is not dominating the ball. And when he's got to play like that on offense, how much can he give on defense? And they're horrible on defense. They're just terrible. And they are not, you know, Victor Oladipo's getting his points, but so is everyone, you know, so is everyone on that team right now. Miles Turner's had a nice couple games. They're getting the buckets when they need them. I, you Again, I, I don't know if the Pacers have enough pieces to win this series, but I, I think they could. If, if, if it's, I, I think it's very possible Indiana wins this series. And even if Cleveland gets out of this, you can't feel confident about them going forward at all. No, I mean, you, you really can't. Like, the way we're talking about LeBron having to do everything, the last time we talked about it to this degree was the finals when, when yeah. Kyrie Irving was out, the first one against the Warriors, and that was the finals. Yeah. Like, we were asking LeBron to do this to maybe beat the Pacers in the first round. Yeah. Like, eventually that's if it doesn't catch up to him against Indiana eventually it will is this the worst supporting cast he's had since the since he left Cleveland yes I think so I mean I have to look but I I yeah yeah it is I don't even have to look yeah yes, because you think is. about it this isn't as good as any of the Miami teams and frankly you you mentioned the name earlier without Kyrie Irving and without replacing him with an all-star level player they don't have that other guy I mean Kyrie Irving's an all-star slash borderline all-NBA level player that you could turn to to make plays on offense and hit big shots, which he clearly did. Um, they hoped Isaiah Thomas could fill that role. He couldn't, and they don't have anybody like that right now. And, and Jay Crowder was supposed to be a very helpful role player for whatever reason. He didn't get it going in Cleveland, so you sell low on both those guys. And, and I think this gets overlooked, but the primary return in the Kyrie trade was that Nets pick. That Nets pick might be good for Cleveland, but it's not going to help them this year in the playoffs. No, that I think that that actually I think that pick does help them one way or another. Whatever happens with LeBron, but yeah, exactly. They 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 it didn't work out for them. By the way, Jay Crowder's playing pretty well. We'll get to that series. Uh-huh. We'll get okay. He's he's not been great, but he hasn't. He's he's filled a role for them. Although you know, yeah. um, but that said, he's playing better in 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 the system in Utah than he certainly did trying to find his way around in Cleveland. Yeah. I'd also, by the way, I really do not want to sell the Pacers short here. They've played really great basketball, and Victor Oladipo's been phenomenal on both ends. They have. I mean, for a little perspective, the Pacers had a better point difference during the regular season than the Cavs. The Cavs had the better record, which is why they have home court advantage. But over time, point difference tends to be a better predictor of playoff success than record. It does. And by the way, the for people who don't know this, and you can see it at uh, NBA.com or, or any of the stats, Cleaning Glass, and I think at Basketball Reference would have this, all these sites. The Pacers, I mean the Pacers, the Cavaliers were the luckiest team in the NBA this, that way. They outplayed their point differential far by more than any other team in the league this year. They, they got more wins than expected um, because they were they made some, they played well at close games late and they had some some fortunate moments, but... You're right. I mean, they were they have the point differential of a team that's much closer to 500 than they actually were. And maybe, you know, maybe there's something to that. Maybe it's something about LeBron's ability in the clutch. You know, when you have a, a player who can take over offensively like that, I think it helps in those moments. 
Uh, but when you tend to read too much into that, like that's usually when you go wrong. Exactly. Um, we'll move on to, there's two other series in the East. We'll stay out there. We'll talk uh, Boston and Milwaukee. A- an interesting series, I guess. I thought Giannis Antetokounmpo is playing well. He's putting up numbers. 32 point something, uh, 32 points a game. Eleven boards, about eight, seven or eight assists, shooting over. I think it's sixty-two percent. He's been exactly who he we kind of you know he was during the regular season, who you expect him to be. But that team turns the ball over, just makes too many mistakes mentally on defense, and Boston just exploits that stuff. And they've gotten great play out of guys like Terry Rozier. Yeah, I, I think this is a series is a really good example of the idea that in the playoffs, it becomes more about not having weaknesses than having strengths. Obviously, both are important. Uh, but the Bucks are probably a team with higher strengths and far lower weaknesses, and the Celtics are a team with not as quite high of strength, but, but fewer weaknesses. Yeah, that's actually a good point. Uh, they, they, there are places you can attack Milwaukee, and uh, Middleton's played well for them, but I don't know that they have to love what they're getting out of a lot of their role players. Yeah, Middleton and Giannis have been good. Uh, uh, Tony Snell has basically been non-existent. Yep. Eric Bledsoe is having a rough series. Yep. Uh, getting getting outplayed by the guy who he's never heard of. His name's Terry Rozier. He's pretty good. And <laughs> and the, the Celtics are, are just deeper. Uh, they don't have the, the defensive liabilities. Like the Bucks, the Bucks centers haven't done a great job defensively. They're often out of position. Uh, there's the Bucks are still trying to figure out what to do with Jabari Parker. He's a tough defender, and, and it's I'm not trying to put all the blame on the Bucks centers. It's definitely not a their problem individually, but the the defense on the perimeter is shaky. And then by the time the Celtics get going downhill toward the rim, uh, the Bucks centers aren't good enough defensively to clean that up. It's asking a lot. Uh, but they're not close to up to the challenge. No, that's that's one spot where I think that the the GM has got to look in the off season and, and find some way to, or or do something crazy like play more Giannis at the five and and try to try to get some defense that way, um, and some a little shot blocking and athleticism inside and just be able to overwhelm teams. I'd love to see more of that. But that I think we've all said that about a hundred times. So uh, we've seen and we've seen it for short stretches in this stretches in this series. By the way, Jabari Parker. I feel bad for that guy, but I don't know how much I'm paying him this summer. Yeah, I mean, he is one of the biggest dilemmas in the league because, you know, you don't want to lose him for nothing. He's still talented. He's just coming off this injury. You know, maybe he's not all the way back and comfortable and flowing yet. He, he missed a lot of time to train. On the other hand, he's just coming off this injury. His second major one, like how much do you want to pay somebody with his injury history? How does he fit with Giannis? Like all the reasons this is a huge dilemma for the Bucks this summer are on display in this series. Yeah, and I don't know that there's another team like, wow, we can get Jabari Parker and, you know, poach him away. I, I don't know that anybody in a tight financial market this summer where there's not a lot of money on the table for free agents – I don't know that there's anybody out there thinking, you know, we don't have a lot of cash, but I'd really like to spend what we have on Jabari Parker. I mean, maybe a team like the Nets or Bulls or Hawks says this is our chance to add a high-end talent while we're still down and, like, we can afford to be patient with him and it's it's worth a swing. And if it doesn't work out, his contract will be close to ending by the time we're ready to, to do something for real. And if he's good, you know, then it's great. But, like, there, there are a few of those teams – 
and it takes one of them to like him, and maybe one of them will, but when your market is potentially only so few teams, uh, that'll make it tough for him to get a big offer sheet. Yeah. On the flip side, um, Brad Stevens looks brilliant in Boston, as as he often does, and Al Horford has been looking like an all-NBA kind of player. I mean, he has really anchored them again on defense and got and been a bully and, and done what he needed to do on offense to get them buckets inside. Yeah, he's having such a nice series. I think really underrated. Like, if you talk about throughout the entire league, who's having the best playoffs so far, and we're obviously doing the small samples, I think you got to start with LeBron. Uh, but when you get into that mix of who's been the second best, like, Horford is in the mix, and so is Giannis, but but Horford has been so good offensively, defensively, picking up all the things this team needs. Uh, but it's not just him, and that's the difference. Like, he has far more help than Giannis has had. Yeah, he does. He's got help, and they and they. this is back to something I talked about a lot going into these series, and we talked about. On one side, you have the incredibly disciplined Celtics who have their system and are going to play their system and play smart and not beat themselves and not make a lot of mistakes. And on the other side, you have the Bucks, who are very talented, but whatever their system is, and it changed obviously some with, with the Jason Kidd firing Joe Prunty coming in midseason, um, they, they're just not a disciplined team. They don't play well together all the time, and yeah. You look at that team, though, I think you can see why it's the coaching job everybody wants, and, and it it makes the like the coaching search for the Knicks and stuff interesting because if you're David Fisdale or somebody with options, you're all like, man, I'm going to hold off, man. I'm going to try to wait this out a little bit because I want to see what that what happens with that Bucks job because you watch that team and you're like, man, you just think you could get so much more. There's got to be somebody who can get more out of what they've got. Maybe I'm wrong, but it just feels like there should be. I completely agree. Isn't that far and away the best open job right now? Oh, like, yeah. Far and away. And that's... Like I said, I think that that's what makes it interesting because not so much with the Suns, although they are interviewing, I was about to say everybody under the sun, but that, that that's a bad pun. Um, they're interviewing a lot of people. The, the Suns are looking everywhere. The Knicks, though, I mean, the guys I think they'd like to hire, the guys with options are all going to be like trying to stall this out because they want to see, look, that's still the job. They're moving into a new building in Milwaukee. They um, obviously with Giannis and those role players and and everybody, you're, you know, you're going to have Bledsoe, you're going to have um, Middleton. You've got the potential to put together a really great team there. Uh, I will say this is the one word of caution, though. Remember, this was a franchise that hired a compromised GM because the two factions of ownership couldn't agree on which guy they, they each wanted somebody else and wouldn't back down. So they had to settle for a compromised guy that's a little bit of a red flag if you're going to take that coaching job, but there's so much talent on the floor that I don't think it's going to stop anybody. Yeah, that's a good point about the ownership. The ownership is always so important, and yeah. there are some questions there. Uh, but, the t- you know, there's there are no perfect jobs, and oftentimes the ones the ones that are open more often generally have worse owners yep. uh, because they didn't get it right the first time. And so sometimes you just have to deal with that and, and hope you're a good enough coach to, to overcome I, I do want to talk more about the Celtics, though. I, oh, I feel like we haven't credited them enough no, no. for you know, how, how well Jalen Brown is playing, what yep. he's doing as a scorer. Again, these are only two-game samples, but they're so important. Uh, Terry Rozier has been so steady as the starting point guard with Kyrie Irving injured. Uh, no turnovers throughout the series. He's hitting his three-pointers. Uh, you know, For him to become a team's main starting point guard, I still have questions about 
his distribution skills. Like some of the the reason he has so few turnovers is because he's not being asked to create so much for his teammates. Uh, but he's doing a very good job within his role. Marcus Morris is playing with so much swagger and confidence right now, hitting yep. shots that don't look like good shots. And, They're not you know, good shots. <laughs> that could run out on him, but he's hitting them right now, and maybe in part because he's hitting them, he's defending with a lot of energy. Jason Tatum, yep. up and down, a little more down offensively, has not affected his defense. He's been playing really hard and really effectively defensively, uh, especially young players, but a lot of players fall into that where their shots aren't falling and their effort wanes defensively. Not a problem with him in this series. No, they've, they've been fantastic, and, and that depth is such an advantage for them. That ability to roll different guys in and know that those guys are going to come in and make plays is is huge for them. I just... I. I, I've been so impressed with them all season long, but particularly now. They've been, they've how, been great. How astounding is it that we can still talk about their depth, that, that their backups can come in, when when this, these yeah. are deep backups with Kyrie Irving, Marcus Smart, Daniel Tice all out, that they can still rely on their depth. Yeah, uh, the, 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 that's been the story of their season. And their ability to count on, like you said, Tatum and Brown are young guys that shouldn't be able to defend this well, and you shouldn't be able to trust in these kind of moments, and yet here they are making plays. So it's been it's been an amazing, that's what I said, there was a reason Brad Stevens was on my top of my coach of the year list, but uh, it's been an impressive run through these playoffs, and I, obviously I th- we think Boston will advance. I think we both think to move on, by the way, I think we both think Toronto will advance, and Washington is just... You know, I've watched both games of this series now, and Washington, I mean, I've watched actually all the games, but Washington, boy, they look like a team that didn't build good habits and was inconsistent during the season, and it's just continued right over. You can't, maybe the Warriors can flip that switch because they've been to that spot before, but the Wizards have not, and they have not been able to flip any switches. No, they haven't, but I also think John Wall is is a player who, for years, even before he got to the NBA, had a lot going on around him distraction-wise and noise and questions, and he knows at this point how to filter that out and focus on playing his game, and I don't think he's going to be daunted or intimidated by them being down 2-0 or you know that, that video that's circulating of him uh, jawing with Marcin Gortat while Bradley Beal buries his head in the towel, like the type of thing that like can can become a point uh, of contention or worth talking about. Like, I don't think Wall's going to be daunted by that. I'm not sure the Wizards are good enough for that to matter. I'm not sure his teammates are as comfortable within chaos as he is. Uh, But I don't think he's going to be overwhelmed by being down 2-0. No, but they need way more out of Bradley Beal, and their defense has, again, just been inconsistent. And on the flip side of that, Toronto... Look, the first game, you could tell that they were pressing. They were You could tell that the whole thing about not winning the first game was bothering them um, a little bit, and they were able to kind of overcome that and get the win. In game two, they looked fantastic. They looked like the Raptors that, that Toronto fans would hope for. DeRozan's getting points, but more than that, the ball swinging around everywhere. They're defending well inside and out. Um, th- that looked like a very dangerous team in game two, and a, a team that trusted each other. I mean, start of that game, they were up, I think, what, 14-3 or whatever it was early. OG Ananobe had seven of those points early. He was kicking, they're kicking him to corner threes, and he's cutting baseline and making plays, and they trust that rookie to make plays because they they believe in him. They've, they've been doing it all season. 
I think that that's one of the uh, biggest positives for Dwayne Casey. One of the main things that put him over the top where I picked him as coach of the year is how he has entrusted his young players. Ananobi is a great example. Pretty much everybody they bring off the bench except for C.J. Miles is a good example. And that starts with Casey and flows throughout the team because Casey trusts those guys. Their veteran teammates trust them because they're trusted. They feel confident to make plays. Uh, And the way from Casey down throughout the entire team, the way they trust those young players, I I think has been so big. Now, there's always a chance that you get deeper in the playoffs that trust doesn't last in the same way. If they make a young player mistake that maybe the veterans or Casey doesn't feel the same way, it could hurt the confidence. Like there, there's always potential that this could could go sideways down the road. But so far, it's been excellent. Yeah, and they've been doing it without Fred Van Fleet, who will come back at some point and add even more depth and more options to them in the point. So, um, it, it I, that series, I think Washington takes one at home. But I've got a feeling this is a five game series. I just I can't see them really flipping the switch. I mean, it's possible, but I'm not going to bet on it. Should we be, and I don't really know the answer. It's like I've watched the games. I'm just not really sure because it, the Wizard or the Rafters offense has been so good, but their defense has not. The Wizards have scored pretty comfortably, uh, not well enough to keep up with the Raptors, but should we be concerned with the Raptors' defense going forward? That's a good question. I don't know. And, you know, it would get tested very differently against uh, Cleveland or Indiana in the second round, but Cleveland in particular would test it very differently than, than Washington would. Um, I'm not there yet. I thought they've defended okay, uh, but maybe, but part of it is that they've just been able to, they've been able to get up tempo and score and make plays in transition and just get the shots they want. So it, it kind of masks the easy wins mask the fact that their defense maybe hasn't been as good as, as it needs to be down the line. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's also in the same way we talked about with LeBron. Like, sometimes you dial it up more when you yeah. need to. And if you don't need to because you're scoring so easily, you don't. Yeah, it's a fair question. But I don't, I don't know that that series lasts long. So we, we can move on to the Western Conference where I, I think the most interesting series might be the one where there's a Game 3 tonight, Pelicans, Blazers. Uh, even though that the Pelicans are up to nothing... What Portland needs, Portland needs a lot of things, but it's got to start. I thought, honestly, all right, they're going to make life difficult for Damian Lillard because they've got Drew Holiday and they can trap him and they can do some stuff, but they've got CJ McCollum and all these other guys who are going to step up. Those guys have not stepped up. And it's been Lillard. If Lillard can't create it, nobody there seems to be able to. Yeah. I mean, the trailblazers, they, they seem so out of sorts offensively. And that obviously starts with the Pelicans defense uh, but the Trailblazers are playing right into their hands where where it seems like, okay, Damian Lillard, the way they're trapping him, it's going to be harder for him individually to be as effective. So now what? And they don't seem to have a cohesive solution within the flow of offense. It's just different players, including Lillard against traps and double teams, like deciding at different points, okay, it's my turn to try and get us going. Uh, it's been Evan Turner at times. At times it's even Zach Collins. Uh, And they're all just trying to say, okay, well, now maybe I should be the one to get us going. And it's not really within the flow, and everything looks disjointed. Yeah, everything does look disjointed. And, by the way, it's been on both ends. Uh, They were a really nice defensive team during the regular season, but I don't—they haven't protected—Nurkic hasn't protected the rim and the paint quite the same way. 
and that's allowed. I mean, part of it is, look, Anthony Davis is an absolute beast, but but Drew Holiday on his penetration has kind of gotten where he wanted to go, and their play has lifted up everybody else. You've got Etwan Moore making plays, and, and just guys, uh, Miritich has been, I, I don't think we can undersell how good he's been for them. No, I mean, he, he plays hard. He's a good shooter. Uh, because he plays hard, he's a good enough defender. You know, he, he's doing well. And, and obviously, you know, as much as we want to talk about the role players and Drew Holiday, who's somewhere between a role player and a star playing well, and we can talk more about that, it's Anthony Davis. Yes. Anthony Davis is their best player. He's He is ready for this moment. He's been ready. It's a shame that the Pelicans weren't good enough to be in the playoffs more often. He was really good when they got swept a few years ago. He is absolutely ready to handle the playoffs and showing it. Yeah, he's he's been an absolute monster. And they just, I would say they don't have an answer for him, but I don't know who does have an answer for him. I mean, you know, obviously they would get um, Golden State in the next round and the Warriors are... They're pretty good. I don't know if you do that. They, 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 I think that they'll be able to pull that kind of series out, but Davis is going to get his against them. He's just playing absolutely great basketball. It's just the Warriors have better bodies to throw at him. Aminu has not been able to hold up. Nurkic has been not good enough, and there just aren't other options for them, and especially uh, if they're not going to get off it, if they're not going to get enough offense. Uh, Aminu has been the best option on Davis, but the problem is, well, then who does who does Nurkic defend? And so, yeah. you know, you're, you're going to put him out in space on Miritich. Like, there, yeah. there are no great answers. I do think the one thing working in Portland's favor, though, the Trailblazers, especially now that Mo Harkless is getting healthier, are deeper. And if they can prolong the series enough, maybe over time, that and a potential Game 7 at home, gets them over the edge, but a two nothing hole is obviously a lot to overcome. The two to nothing hole at home, but they is game three almost must for them. I mean they've got to they've I mean technically no, I guess in mathematically, but in practice they can't go down three oh. Yeah, I mean I I'm a big believer that no there are no must wins until you're you've already lost three. Uh, but it's a very important game. I, I think it was Kevin Pelton had a stat it. It was something like Eight of ten teams that lost their first two games at home and then lost game three on the road end up getting swept. Yep. Like they obviously all lost because nobody's ever come down from from down three zero. But but they all got but eight of the ten got swept. Like they would be in such a deep deep hole. Yeah, I think that if they're going to find a way to get things going, it's it's got to be Thursday night. They can't uh, they cannot wait around and. Home and comfortable, you could get a lot more out of some of the role players uh, again for... Look, Davis is going to be great. I expect we'll get great things out of Drew Holiday, but if if their role players are coming up, that's what makes them far more dangerous. Uh, the other... F- I, Go ahead. Just real quick on Drew Holiday. Obviously, he's gotten a lot of attention for how well he's played and deserves it. He's been awesome on both yeah. sides of the floor. I have a theory for why he's looked so good defensively. And he and Anthony Davis were all defensive team type players throughout the season, though the Pelicans were not a great defensive team overall. Like It's like, oh, they were above average. And the case for those two was, well, look at their teammates. Their teammates are so lacking defensively for for Holiday and Davis to get the Pelicans to the pretty good, not great level they were shows just how good they were. Well, playoff Rajon Rondo, he dials it up. Yeah, we haven't even talked about that. And, and that makes it easier for Drew Holiday. No longer is Holiday... Uh, just trying to keep the Pelicans' head above water and doing everything. Like because Rondo is now holding his own, he's not the defender he used to be even now. But because he's holding his own, that really frees Holiday 
uh, to kick it up a, a notch even higher. Exactly, and, and and be more aggressive. And, and the way Davis is playing on the back line allows you to kind of pressure and gamble and make some plays out on the perimeter and getting guys faced because even if Lillard gets by you, um, there's a guy there to erase that problem. Um, and that that's the reason I think. Look, I think I think the Pelicans are moving on. I think the the pace the Blazers are in a lot of trouble, and that leads to a really interesting off season for them, which is a completely different podcast and discussion, but. That'll be three out of four years that they've been bounced in the first round and they got to the three seed, but now they've got to look at this alike and think about what they need to do that takes them another up another step because I'm, I think they thought they had done that and maybe they haven't. I mean, I, I don't think I can be giving you assignments. I work for you, but I'm, I'm going to give you an assignment right now. Uh, line up Dane to do a podcast for shortly after the, play, the Blazers get eliminated about what's next. Yeah, that's That'd actually be real interesting. Yeah, I think I think we will do that for people who don't know Dane Carbaugh, who works for us and uh, is a lives in the Northwest and and writes a lot of Portland stuff and has written a lot for us this year. I think he'll be writing for us on that and uh, that might that might be part of what we do next week as well. Well, let's move on and talk about the other fascinating series in the East, which is or in the West, which is. Oklahoma City and Utah 1-1. Oklahoma City looked really impressive in Game 1 when their offense was clicking, uh, attacking the Utah Jazz. But then in Game 2, the Jazz defense found a groove. They The big three for OKC was 0-15 down the stretch. And Utah was, look, Donovan Mitchell had struggles early, but Ricky Rubio was hitting shots. The other guys were getting involved in the offense and making plays. Derek Favors, who I always thought was kind of an X factor in this series because they don't, they can't really cover him with Carmelo Anthony, had a huge night on the boards. Uh, it was the kind of game, well, a that Utah would like to play. It was in their style, and it felt like a game they had to win. They did. They showed some real resilience when they went down after the 19-0 run. And uh, man, this this series is living up to what I'd hoped it would be, Dan. Yeah, I agree. I mean, this was the the series I most anticipated going in. Uh, and and I think it's instructive to look back on kind of how we viewed it entering, because I think to some degree it's played out. And that's the Jazz, once they had their playoff rotation, once Rudy Gobert came back, compared to the Thunder once they had their playoff rotation, which is essentially the team with Corey Brewer, but, but most importantly without Andre Robertson, the Jazz were way, way better. Yeah. Way better. Like, this, it was not close. The Jazz were way better. But there was also a thought that in the playoffs, stars matter more than they do yeah. in the regular season, that the pace slows, everything tightens, and sometimes you just need somebody with some exceptional individual talent to go buy a basket. And I think this series has kind of played out that way. In Game 1, Paul George was excellent. Like, there was nothing that the Jazz could do to stop him, and that's why the Thunder won. In Game 2, this is the downside of being overly reliant on stars like that. They make a lot of tough shots, shots that players on Utah would make at a far worse clip. But because of that, they're also baited into tough shots easier. A lot of those shots in the fourth quarter from Russell Westbrook, Paul George, Carmel Anthony, those were not good shots. And in part, that's in part because the Jazz defense was making it hard to get good shots. But because the Thunder had those stars, I think those guys were a little too eager to take those bad shots and not work for something better. Yeah, exactly. I think that the Jazz defense is making OKC work for its buckets. In Game One, the the OKC defense was really genuinely able to um, give some problems to the Jazz, but they adapted. They adjusted. Part of it too was look, 
Ricky Rubio made better decisions about when to shoot. Now, he hit five of eight from three, and I don't, you know, again, OKC will let him take those eight pretty much every time. But he was much better about picking his spots. He wasn't like, oh, I'm rushing. I got to kind of take these 18. It was, all right, if you're going to leave me this wide open, I'm going to look for my other options. But ultimately, I'm going to set my feet and show you I can knock this down if you give me this much space. I don't know if he can do that consistently, but he can do it for stretches. And that opened up other stuff. And then Donovan Mitchell, just even with all that defense focused on him, was able to find another gear at the end, was able to get past uh, some of the defense there. And there was some other stuff going on. Stephen Adams being in foul trouble was huge in this game on the boards. It allowed uh, it allowed Derek Favors to do what he did on the glass. But it, this was... This was the kind of game that I mean, isn't that how Utah wants to play? That kind of grinding, gritty game that that's right in their wheelhouse. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Ricky Rubio is not going to make shots like that every game, but he is taking them confidently. Now, this is a far different yes. Ricky Rubio. He's comfortable in a high volume shooting role for the Jazz in a way he never, maybe rarely was with the Timberwolves. Like, they've made it clear, like, this is going to be part of your game. You've got to take these shots. And so when he shoots them confidently, he's comfortable with it. He has a chance to have games like this sometimes, and the, and the downside is not what it would have been in Minnesota of him passing up those looks and the offense really stalling. Uh, Donovan Mitchell, I mean, so much has been said, but he's just, he's awesome. You know, he, he is in such control. He has so many moves. He knows he's a step ahead of the defense. He's going to beat the defense to the spot that he wants to get to. Know where he's going to be. Be prepared to shoot it from there. Shoot it confidently. Uh, he's going to make a lot of shots, put a lot of pressure on the defense. He is a step ahead right now. And and one underrated thing that I think is working well for the Jazz that you uh, alluded to with uh, Stephen Adams' foul trouble the Jazz are comfortable playing with Rudy Gobert and Derek Favors together. Yep. And there are problems that come with putting two bigs together. The Jazz have been talking about these specific problems, though, for years. That Because they've had a chance to develop chemistry and some workarounds and to make the most of it, you can still have those two bigs out there. They're going to pressure Stephen Adams on the glass, and Adams is going to have to be physical to hold his own, and sometimes that's going to lead to fouls. Yeah, that's actually very true. And they... they that you remember that didn't work at first and it really did kind of the second half of the season for whatever reason they started to find a groove with that favors go bear lineup the two bigs and it's not something you're going to use every game but again i think favors can abuse and i and it's not utah's way to just hunt out mismatches in a in a houston kind of sense but carmelo anthony is a guy they can really go at and take advantage of and they've done that a little bit on the flip side by the way OKC's defense, I said, you know, they've done a really good job. One of the things that I think they've been brilliant as, and they've used Paul George in this role and others, they've kept Joe Ingles under wraps. And Ingles is the, the, you know, when Donovan drives or when Ricky's trying to find passes to find an open guy, it's Ingles that's either open at the arc and does the catch and shoot, or if you close on him, he's a good cutter. He can create a little off his, of his own off the dribble and be the guy who kind of gets that secondary play made. They've done a really good job of just denying him the ball, draping all over him, and not letting him do play his role in the offense. And that's that's taken some adjustment for Utah. That's a great point. Ingles has been the, the barometer for the Jazz's offense throughout the season because when he's scoring and he's doing things, that's a sign everything else is flowing. He's not somebody who creates so much for himself. So when he's scoring, that means others are creating for him because they are getting advantages. They're drawing attention. And that means everything is flowing. 
But the Jazz just won a game without Ingles playing particularly well. Like, the Thunder, you're right, the Thunder are doing a good job of not making this easy, that the Jazz could still answer and still find a way uh, shows something about how good this team is. Yeah, exactly. This this has been, uh, this is a, look, we thought going into this, I had it at seven games, I think you had it at six or seven games too, right? I mean, we both thought this was going to be one of the hardest fought series in the first round, and it, it has just lived up to the billing. It's It's one I think is going to go, Deep and it's going to be interesting as the adjustments come and and Utah tries to find their offense and if you're if you're the Thunder I don't know how many adjustments you're making versus just you need these guys to get hot and make those shots and and they weren't able to do that in game two but you're not changing who you are at this point you're an attacking aggressive team and you've got to find a way to get some buckets around that yeah I mean maybe some more Jeremy Grant at center I liked that uh, the, a lot the spacing night, yeah. and speed he provided was was a little bit of a challenge for Utah there's gonna be some downsides to that but maybe there's some moments you can yeah. you can go to that a little more uh, and for my pick I had jazz and six and here's a little tip for anybody ever picking series I will never take a a team without home court advantage in any number other than six. Yeah, exactly. Most of the time, the team without home court advantage wins, they win at six. When the team with home court advantage wins, it's fairly evenly distributed between four, five, six, or seven. But if you're taking the underdog, always pick them in six. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I'm with you on that. I will never, I don't pick the seven, the, the road team in seven is just a, a mistake. They've, they've kind of got to win that sixth game. And I still think that's really possible. It, it's, Utah heads home now where they should get a little bit better play out of their role, guys. And um, maybe they can get Ingles going in a game. But I've got a feeling this is going to go back to OKC split 2-2. Two, two. Yeah. I mean, the way how tight this has been, why wouldn't it? Yeah, exactly. This has been... Yeah, it's just been amazing. And, and Donovan Mitchell, like you said, he's... I, I, the one thing I wanted to say again, I don't think you can emphasize enough. This was a Jazz team that, remember... Nine games under 500, five games out of the playoffs halfway through the season. Rudy Gobert's out injured, could have rolled over. A lot of teams would have rolled over and just kind of chalked this up to a development year and, and, and trying to play without Gordon Hayward and we've got to get used to each other. They didn't. They fought back and they did it in this game, you know, and made the playoffs. They did it in this game, uh, game two, where they were in control. They were the better team. Thunder go on that 19-0 run. They just absolutely tear it up and they bounce back. They don't quit. They and they buckle down on defense. They it's they decide. Look, yes, that's when you started to get Donovan Mitchell really going off. But mostly they made their decision and moved and played better defensively, and that's what changed everything. They they got the back to getting stops, and then that created the offense for them to make the pushback. Yeah, I mean this is a larger cultural thing, but this is, this is a team full of mentally strong players. Yep. Like in hindsight. You know, it's always surprising when a team so far out of the playoff race or a team that surrenders a, a big run like that comes back. It's always surprising. You can never expect it even from mentally strong players. But if there's a group that's going to do it, it's not that surprising that it's this group. Yeah. Well, th- let's, I, like you said, we're going to be watching this one for a while. I think we'll be talking about this one more. Let's move on to talk about the two, well, frankly, slightly less close, less interesting series in the West. Houston versus Minnesota. Uh Look, Houston's great. Let, let's start there. I mean, and I think that you saw in Game Two some of the differences from them from years past, and that James Harden just cannot throw a pee in the ocean at this point. Uh, you know, and it doesn't matter. Chris Paul's making plays. Other guy, you know, you've got other guys stepping up all over the place. That's a really good deep team that defends well enough, and they're just fine. 
But Minnesota, Minnesota's learning some hard lessons about what it looks like in the playoffs, man. Are they learning any lessons? Well, though? that's a good question. Like, <laughs> they I, should I, be. But but as is Tom Thibodeau, Derek Rose, are, are those guys actually learning lessons, or are they just kind of doing what what they're comfortable with? The the Timberwolves' offense is not really pretty. Uh, you know, the, we can get to their defense too, which has maybe even bigger problems. The Timberwolves offensively, though, were pretty good because they're a really talented offensive team. Uh, but with Jimmy Butler, he does not look right, and that makes a huge difference for them. And when that happens, like they don't have the offensive flow or creativity to do anything other than, hey, let's get a lot of shots for our guards, even when they're not as good as Carl Anthony Towns. No. It... They're obviously not going to be moving on this summer from Tom Thibodeau or doing anything. I mean, they made the playoffs this year. Um, they made a big step forward in terms of, I mean, the team took steps forward. But his old school ways and the way he's using his rotations and reliance on Derrick Rose, um, at least he didn't bring Ty Lawson into a game. We didn't even get into that. I don't know where. <laughs> that, I'm going to play Lawson over Sadoransky. I meant to have a whole rant on how stupid that was. I can't believe I, I missed, skipped over that note. But um, It's not too late. Like We can just have a little interlude of you railing on that and get right back what? to Minnesota Houston. Oh, my God. You have you literally picked him up for the playoffs. Sadoransky played well during the regular season. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to inject a totally new guy into the rotation who doesn't... Who, look, Lawson's never been a great defender. That was never his strength in the first place. But now I'm going to put him out there when we're struggling on defense, a guy who has no connection with the other players on this team, who doesn't, you know, hasn't played in our system very long. And they get torched with him out there a little bit on that end. And, and he, yes, he put up some raw numbers and he brought some energy. But he, if Ty Lawson is not the answer for them, the answer for them is internal. And the fact that they're running him in front of guys who were with that team all season is, a, is an issue for me. So, all right. So, so the Rockets' defense yes. is is you know has played very well, but has also set a style throughout the whole season that they're going to switch a lot, and has led to a lot of discussion about Carl Anthony Towns and his role in this series because he is often defended by a smaller guard. It yep. seems right oh. for post ups. He doesn't always have to shoot on those, but the attention it would draw. You've got to bring a double, and you can pass out of it. Yeah, he's not and, a bad passer. So why isn't he? posting up more and I think there are two legitimate reasons at this point why it's not happening more most of it is illegitimate it's that you know oh he's got to work harder to get position he's getting position the Timberwolves just aren't trying hard enough to get him the ball however there are two problems why you can't just simply give him the ball more one Timberwolves have a bunch of bad entry passers like getting him the ball is not so easy for them two the Timberwolves need Carl Anthony Towns to go beyond the three-point arc to create space. It's real clogged when he goes inside, and it's clogged in part for him, which makes it only harder for the entry passers. However, these are structural problems that could have been predicted. Why did the Timberwolves you know, use their cap exception to sign Jamal Crawford, and another ball handler who's not that efficient but can create decent shots in tough situations, something that Jimmy Butler can do, something that Andrew Wiggins likes to do, something Jeff Teague can do, uh, something you might not need to do as often? If you went out and got a floor spacing forward instead, if you got somebody who was a, a more capable path entry passer instead, like these, these are structural problems the Timberwolves are dealing with now uh, because of how Tom Thibodeau designed this team. And Tom Thibodeau's old school ways on offense, there's just not enough spacing in there, and just 
that team doesn't that team feel like it's stuck defensively? They're not switching much. They don't like to switch. They've done a little bit in this series, but it's not something they're comfortable doing. They just I feel like I feel like this team is stuck in eight years ago and not moving forward. And maybe Derrick Rose is part of that, but this just feels like a team that's stuck in eight years ago and it's playing a modern team. And granted, Houston was going to win the series. They're more talented. Uh, they are the better team, but. The gap between them and Minnesota and where Minnesota wants to be is really huge. And it's not just a matter of, well, Carl Anthony Towns will be a year older and better. There's some structural stuff there. Yes. And on the flip side, the Rockets, there's some structural stuff there for the positive. Yeah. Like James Harden was awful last night. Rockets still cruised because they got Chris Paul. They identified a problem, which was that James Harden gets worn down as good as he is. He gets worn down when he has to do everything. And so, you know, easier said than done to go get a Chris Paul, but they knew what direction they needed to go. And so Chris Paul took over the offense. Everything flowed fine then. And, you know, Harden's can still draw fouls is good enough. Uh, when Chris Paul is, is a, you know, a, a Hall of Famer still in his prime, on the tail end of it, but still in it, leading the offense. Exactly. It allows them to do it. And, and Chris Paul's gift at not only getting some buckets, but setting other guys up in spots they want the ball makes everyone around him so much better, and, and their whole role-player flow was better. Their defenses looked, again, they switched everything all season because they're practicing for Golden State, um, but it's looked good in this series, and they haven't been abused. Like you said, they they just haven't been abused by the fact that they've switched smalls on to Carl uh, Anthony Towns or what have you. There's a, I, I, I have a hard time seeing how Minnesota, maybe they win one game at home, but I, I don't see them winning one. So that, that series seems all but over and, and the Bucks will get, I mean, the, the Rockets will get some rest because those other series will go much longer. Um, I'd, I'd, feel, I'd feel much more confident about the Rockets than obviously they already look pretty good, but I feel a lot more confident with them uh, if and when they get a, Lukamba Mute back. Yes. They seem to be a rotation player. Short, you know, against Minnesota, it's fine, but eventually I, I'm not going to be good with relying on Gerald Green to get hot or rotation yeah. minutes from Joe Johnson. Uh, Mba Mute is far better suited for that role. Exactly, but uh, we'll see if he's back next round or when he's back. They, um, they can, I think, get through round two without him, but beyond, they, they're certainly going to need him against Golden State when they get to that point. And with Golden State, there's just a pall over this, over this series now because of the death of Aaron Popovich, isn't there? There's just it just feels a little weird. He, uh, Greg Popovich, will not be on the sideline for Game Three. Not that, frankly, that was going to change anything about what's on it. It just makes the feel of the series a little a little strange. But Golden State's looked good, and San Antonio has looked like a team without the athletes to hang with Golden State. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just first of all, like it's such a devastating news uh, about yeah. Greg Popovich's wife. And if there is a silver lining, it, it's that this happened while the Spurs are about to play a home game that will give fans in the arena a chance to to honor her and show their their love for Popovich. I, I'm sure there'll be something pregame. Uh, so yes. if there's any silver lining, it's that that moment can exist. Uh, but once the you're right, once the game gets going. It is going to be so tough for the Spurs. They they're having they're not a good enough offensive team, and that's especially true as the Warriors have cranked up their defense to to the levels it can be, not the levels it's been in weeks. No, and I think that that's actually the question I had going into the series wasn't hey is Golden State going to win this thing? 
it's is Golden State going to get back to being Golden State? And I think that the answer I mean, granted, no Steph Curry yet, some other questions, but by and large, yes, they're back to defending, they're back to playing the way they want to play and being back in their groove. Yeah, I mean, the first step for the Warriors was always going to be flipping the switch yep. and, and improving the energy. And and obviously, the second step's going to be getting back Steph Curry. Their offense can't be completely right without him, but they can have the attitude, the mentality that they need to have, and they're they're showing they're headed in that direction. Yeah, exactly. And I don't, I don't know how much I don't really want to spend a lot of time breaking down the X's and O's of this series because I don't know how much there really matters. It's it's when you've got to run the offense through less athletic bigs, and and Aldridge has been fantastic, honestly, and and all season long, and has done everything you can ask of him. But this is. This is just a bad matchup for San Antonio, and it's a, and actually it's about the best matchup for Golden State because this is the kind of series they needed to find that groove. They would have had a much tougher time if they'd gotten somebody like Oklahoma City or Utah or somebody in the first round. Or even Minnesota. Yep. Yeah, any of those teams would have been a tougher matchup for them. So uh, this, this worked out about as well on the court as it could have for off of them. It just... There'll be a weird vibe in the arena for Game Three in in San Antonio. I mean, I know that they'll the fans will be supportive of Pop and they'll be cheering on their team. And you never know, maybe the Spurs can steal one at home. But uh, this series is it, if it's not over in four, it's a gentleman sweep in five. The Spurs have been much better at home this year, like atypically. So I tend to think that's just random luck that that there's nothing inherent about San Antonio or these players that makes them especially good at home or especially bad on the road. However, even if it is random luck, it can become true, it can become self-fulfilling that if they gain this confidence and believe that they're a way better team at home, even though if it wasn't true, it can become true. And maybe that you're right, maybe I get someone at home. Maybe, I will see, I don't know, but I don't think it changes the ultimate outcome here. Um Dan, thanks for doing this. Spending an hour breaking down the first round. Uh, we will have stories throughout the playoffs on on all the games and uh, and, and and some analysis of a lot of this stuff going forward as as we move for, um, into the into the second and third rounds. Um, and frankly, deep into this first round, there's going to be there's you know last year. Remember, we were complaining about how like this it just actually playoff revenue was down because there were so many short series. Right? Remember, they they ended up part of the reason the salary cap didn't quite make the numbers they thought was that there wasn't the playoff revenue. I don't think that's going to be a problem this year, Dan. Uh, no, probably not. We'll get a real good test on it because the salary cap projection just came out. It's the exact same it's been. So we have this number just before the playoffs, and we can maybe somewhat isolate the playoffs as the reason the projection will go up or down, and we'll see whether that actually becomes true or not. That's actually a good point, yeah, because the TV revenue and stuff doesn't change, but you know, the longer the series have, you have a little more gate that kicks in there. So well, it's not going to move it dramatically. It's going to stick around 101. What, 101 and 123 for the tax, uh, for the luxury tax, right? Yep. So uh, those numbers look to be flat going into next year, and then it actually jumps a little bit the next couple of years, supposedly. We'll see how that goes, but... Um, details of salary cap breakdown will be another podcast for another day. We'll get to that then. Thanks for doing this, Dan. Thanks for having me. You can find him, uh, on Twitter at, at Dan Feldman NBA, I believe. Yes. Uh, you can find me at basketball talk and we will be back next week, possibly talking Portland trailblazers and listening to Dane cry into his very nice Portland Northeastern IPA beer, which I believe he'll be drinking during the podcast. We may get into that next week, but one way or another, we will be back next week with the Pro Basketball Talk podcast here at NBC Sports.
Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.